What's up, guys? Welcome back to Blood, Sweat, and Gear with coaches Skip Hill, Andrew Berry, myself, Scott McNally, and we are joined by Coach Phil Viz. What's up, Phil? What's going on, guys? All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK to get some awesome carb products, high-quality proteins, everything else you can think of um, from a company that you can trust, truenutrition.com, supplementsource.ca for our Canadians, and thank you to everybody from Patreon. You guys are literally saving my butt because we just got the James Hollingheads uh, episode demonetized for whatever reason. No reason at all. They just didn't want to give me money for making that show. We didn't talk about anything we shouldn't talk about. Any Anyway, today um, we're going to start out talking about abs. We're in the live stream. Anybody who's got questions, please post them up. But uh, we've been covering body parts. And Skip was like, dude, we didn't say dude, but he's like, let's talk about abs. Where do we start I don't with this? I usually say dude. And no, I, I know. And I, and I try to avoid <laughs> saying bro. You never say like- bro. As much as possible. It's not very common. Every now and then I'll throw a bruh, but that's yes. not very common. I'm and it's kind of sarcastic when you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Depends yeah. what neighborhood you're in, right? Oh. <laughs> Depends what neighborhood I'm driving through, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think we, when we talk about abs, we've got to look at it in a couple different ways. One being you know, a showcase of the center point of the physique on stage, but then also, additionally, you know, as a tool to make sure you can continue to do the lifts that are going to keep say your legs and your back and your other tissues going. So I think we look at it as two different things. If you get what I'm saying, and sometimes they're not mutually beneficial to each other, right? Because (laughs) if you say, take a powerlifting abdominal training program and you try to give it to a bodybuilder, that's not going to end up, you know, showing very well on stage. They're going to have really, really thick abdominals, really thick obliques, and it's going to pull away from that taper that we're always trying to look for. Whereas if you were to t- say take, you know, a, a very basic tune-up ab workout and try to give it to someone who's in their peak off-season trying to be as strong as possible, trying to, you know, maximize their squat, their deadlift, they might have a weakness in the chain and they might result in some injury. So I think we got to differentiate that, make sure that people that are listening, they're tooling what they're doing with their abs to what their goal is. Tooling what they're doing. I like that. Yeah. Tooling what you're doing. Performance. Yeah, exactly. So you made the main point that I was going to make right off the bat till you beat me to it. So that's cool. <laughs> and that is the aesthetic look that we're after versus mm-hmm. I, I hate to say functionality, but in reality, that's what it is. The support, needed the strength through the midsection to be able to handle the poundages that at least probably three out of four of us are moving um i'm pretty safe with the <laughs> with the poundages i'm moving these days uh, You're stronger than but it, right now but it is a i tell you this even though the poundages aren't what they used to be because of my age and because of my lack of any lateral movement whatsoever i don't have movement outside of the gym i have a little bit of movement for three to four minutes three times a week, but it's still very linear. (laughs) There's not much lateral movement there. So, uh, and I make, I make that joke, but the reality is the older we get, the less we move and not only the less we move, but the less we move, not in a straight line. So if you're still training, you can, and, and, and it could be argued too. When I say straight line forward and backwards versus look, if you go out, I know if I tried to play 10 minutes of pickup basketball, I'd be done training for the next six months. So there isn't any, like if I always laugh and say, if someone grabs my wife's purse or something and takes off, I don't care what's in it because I'm going to blow kneecaps, cartilage, hamstrings will be the least of my concern. I'll probably blow a glute and a rear delt at the same time. 
I'm not going anywhere. So there, there's just that lack of, for most people in the older demographic, that lack of um, not just movement, but, but lateral movement. And that's where we were getting into, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the QL and some of the, the muscles of the midsection that as you age, even a TVA for that matter, we lose strength in the TVA, and unless you're specifically doing something for it, you can have great abdominals and have a weak TVA. And you see well, it all the time in older bodybuilders. I think that? one of the reasons for that is, like you said, the TVA gets weaker because we, you know, just relax more. We just sit around more. We don't do as much. You know, you're not consciously, you know, keeping that in and then flexing that and using that. And, and we, we eat so much, which is counter counterproductive <laughs> to it as well. Yep. Yeah, I think that that's one of the, that's one of the the, the biggest areas in, in all of physique sports or physique competition sports that uh, is overlooked is your transverse simply because that's what holds everything in. That's what allows your waist to be small. That's what allows you to suck in. That's what allows you to have a small tight waist. You know, there's you know people have this misconception. I had this misconception when I was a kid that I thought everybody who had a flat stomach just naturally had a flat stomach. Hmm. No, there everybody in the world whose stomach is flat is sucking in. Like to start to some degree, nobody walks around a hundred percent relaxed and has a flat stomach. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody, but generally speaking, nobody sport. has a flat stomach. In our stomach. sport, and I thought that that was that you know people had flat stomachs it was just because they were trapped. Like I, that's what I thought when I was younger, you know. And I realized when I got older that, that that's not the case, you know. And then I think there's probably a lot of people, even people that are going to view this, that think that, that oh, these people, like, this person's a flat stomach. If the person's stomach's flat, they're sucking it to some degree. Yeah. You know, too, I've noticed is it's the guys, and I, I think Victoria said it to me first, was like the, the, you get the skinny guy syndrome, where guys who are generally really skinny haven't done a lot of sucking in in their lives, because they don't have to do that to look good in a t-shirt, and then they take their clothes off to get on stage, and they don't necessarily have the strongest transverse abs, because they haven't been practicing that, versus you put a few pounds on, and then you're pulling it in on a regular basis to hold it together, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Skinny guy syndrome. Well, I think that having a strong transverse also is going to play into the topic that we're going to discuss is the uh, abdominal training, simply because um, the way abs uh, are going to contract most efficiently are actually inward, not outward. And if you have a weak transverse abdominal wall and everything is pushing out, you're actually pushing out into your abdominal wall and preventing it from being drawn in and contracting that way. Hmm. So one of the things, the main things that I teach as a coach to uh, my entire you know clientele is that if you're going to do abs you have to suck in before you contract you just have to you know here's the thing and and talking about that is a it's a it's an excellent topic but the bitch is is you can't even you struggle to explain it because they're going to struggle to understand it plus even visually it's difficult to show it's almost and and this is the best way i've come up with you guys tell me if you agree with this or not but it's almost as if that when you're doing let's just say a rope crunch that there is a component of a vacuum going on Mm. during the entire not sucking it back to your to your spine it's not over exaggerated but there is that control of the tva and you can't I, I don't think it's it's very easy to explain to the layman or to the novice, I guess. Well, I, I don't well I don't like vacuums as a pose. Um, back in the day when I was doing you know geared up and whatnot, and I was doing all those educational episodes, which seems like forever ago, almost ten years ago now. Actually, we're, we're coming up on twenty twenty four. That was tw- two thousand fifteen. Wow, so, long time. Those are great segments then. too. Those are great segments. Yeah, uh, 
I mean, there's, I'm sure that I can go through them and, and punch some holes in some of the things that I've said because I've gotten smarter and more <laughs> sure. advanced, you know. We did that on an episode here with my old uh, forum posts that were hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, I think that I, I, I think that vacuuming is very effective, and I talked about it on Geared Up about vacuuming to make your waist smaller. And then, you know, what I saw is, like, a lot of people started doing vacuums on stage, and I actually don't like the way that looks at all. I was suggesting vacuums to strengthen the transverse abdominal wall to shrink your waist and make everything more efficient, not to, not to hit a pose on stage. I actually don't like vacuums at all on stage. Really? What don't you like about them? Yeah, because like, there's a like few them. where you like, those look that looks pretty nice. Sometimes they can be impressive. That's what I'm saying. I don't like them a whole lot. Impressive. No, it's impressive. (laughs) I just don't I don't like the aesthetics of it. I don't think it's as aesthetic as showing your abs or a streamlined waist. Um, you know, like even when I was competing, I would not suck in to the point where I had a vacuum. I would suck until my stomach was flat and my waist looked small, you know, so like medium sucking. I I think that's where we need to differentiate between the classes, right? Because bodybuilding is exactly Mm. what you just described. You're not trying to do a vacuum to where you're seeing the rib cage. Whereas in classic, yeah, you might want to show that pose just to show that kind of abdominal control, how small your waist is, and then hit the ab shot. But then looking at, say, men's physique, I think that's a whole different ball game because Mm. in that division, these guys want to sit on their abs in a way that we don't like in bodybuilding right we're doing our front relax we're spreading and we're expanding yeah we're expanding up whereas in class i'm sorry in men's physique they're sitting on them to make them look as hard and deep and chiseled as possible Mm -hmm. so i do think we got to talk a little bit about that as well well that's also going to go back into you know ab separation for example if you're if your transverse abdominal is weak then it's pressing out into that abdominal wall so it's rounding out it's being pushed out so you can't get that stomach flat when you can't get your stomach flat your abs are not going to separate you got to draw them in for your abs to be separated so men's physique competitors absolutely need a strong transverse abdominal wall even though they're not going to hit a vacuum on stage um i i do i i do think it's impressive on stage you know when the classic guys do it i think it's more of a performance thing like look at what i can do rather than an aesthetic thing because i don't see it as aesthetic at all well, get older, and you can't really pull as much of a vacuum, and then you'll be really fucking impressed with it. <laughs> because honestly, you know, the small waist, whether it be, you know, vacuum or not, but the vacuum plays into it to someone who's older. Small waist is, is aside from bodybuilding points and, you know, placings and everything else, it's a sign of youth that has lost mm. the older bodybuilder. And to someone like myself, who, you know, I'm not chasing a pro card and, you know, it's not about how many wins I can, I can tally at the end of the season. It's really kind of staying in that chase for my youth. And I can't stand, I can carry extra body fat because I can, that's okay. You know, to be a little thicker in the offseason, I can't stand not having a small, tighter waist. It drives me. It's, it's been one of my main motivators to stay lean. There are other things like injuries and everything else but the point being is that is a big draw for a lot you know and i work with a an older demographic too i mean i work with everybody but i still have that pull where i'm relatable to the older demographic especially from elite fts so a lot of these guys want the same thing it drives them nuts as well i'm working on it now skip after after having gotten sick and not being able to breathe well i can't like I, i have to do like a lot of belly breathing and I noticed with that, I just let my stomach hang loose and do that but for they two years. That, that, that has changed over the years. It is actually healthy to breathe through the belly now 
versus what we were taught when we were younger of breathing by lifting the rib cage. Well, when I say yeah. belly breathing, I mean just let it hang out. Like I can't oh, if okay. I if I would pull in, then it's like I can't breathe, I can't breathe. So it's yeah. just two years of it hanging out. Now I'm finally like feeling a little bit better, so I'm I'm working <laughs> at it. But it is an uphill battle, that's for sure. Uh, Skip, let me let me let me pose another point to you um, about what you were just talking about, for example, um, because you're talking about like an older demographic and the stomach coming out and things like that. But you know, we have to think of all all the factors that encompass or that relate to uh, what it is that we're talking about. So if we're talking about the abdominal wall not being able to be drawn in, not being able to be flat, it's not always just a weak transverse abdominal wall. A lot of times in older populations, as we know, we get insulin resistance as we get older. Everyone does. There's no such thing as not getting your your insulin sensitivity worse when you get older it's, it's just the way it happens as the body breaks down as you get older and things decline so what happens when your insulin sensitivity is down and you get some insulin resistance you accrue visceral fat more easily mm-hmm. and when you accrue visceral fat more easily it presses out uh, you know against that abdominal wall and it'll give you a belly so anytime that i get masters competitors and older competitors um i am like glued to their a1c like i have them send it to me like every month because i want to see where their sensitivity is and i don't want it to get out of hand um i just put a uh, a pro on stage uh, for masters at uh what was it tampa and then a, a show before that i think he took second but um that was one of the first things that we looked at and he actually had a lot of insulin resistance because he was 50 years old um so what we had to do is we had to uh, put a base of lantus in there to get his blood sugar start trending down and his waist drank you know so it was absolutely related to his visceral fat um and so i think that that's also something that's overlooked is that people that have bellies tend to have insulin resistance i do think though in defense i'll use myself as an example i don't have blood sugar issues pretty much at all i don't know why that is because you know 53 uh, i don't want to say coming up on 54 but i'm closer to 54 than 53 but because i think i've trained for so long and especially staying relatively lean with phases of not being so lean but they're very short for say the last 10 12 years i don't have those i can i can be on growth hormone and running i say higher higher doses for me and still not have to get on a base. I mean, I've got Lantus in the refrigerator, and I'm like, I'm di- dying to use it, but I have no need to use it because I'm fortunate in that sense. That's the end of it. <laughs> and then there's other people, you know, that they'll, all of a sudden they're in the 300s, and that's an extreme case. But, you know, within two weeks or three weeks of starting growth, their their blood sugar levels are all, all over the place, and they're just out of control. And I, I, I completely agree with you. I guess all I'm saying is in my situation, and I've even done DEXA scans where – I can't get that that big pull from a vacuum standpoint, even though my visceral fat will be relatively low, uh, quite low when I'm lean. So yes, you're right, and it and, and it absolutely can well, it's play a part. Just one factor; it's not the only but, factor. Yeah, it, right. Exactly. Exactly. And I would even argue too. I don't want to get too off the or too deep or too off the topic, but. I do think that there's still the component of if we pulled out my intestines and we pulled out someone's intent or, or go back and pull my intestines out when they were 25, um, I'm pretty sure that there has been some cellular growth or an elasticity issue hmm. from pushing food and being a bodybuilder for so long. It's the rubber band effect. You can only stretch it so many times, uh, whether it be the stomach or the you know, the intestines over so much time where I 
I don't secretly want to have to go in for a procedure, but if I have to go in for any type of procedure, I would like a picture of my small intestines or at least to ask the doctor, were you like totally shocked and uh, and just couldn't believe what you saw? Were they just, were my intestines bigger than they're supposed to be? <laughs> well, how about this, guys? We, we, we do have people that are going to say like, well, hey, I want to learn how to grow actual like more show muscle to my abs. So if you have somebody who say did have a shallow set of abs and they're coming into a show in whatever 16 20 weeks, we need to build some ab muscle. What do you, what do you guys suggest? You have a client that comes to you in that situation. Well, first it's train them versus not training them because most people don't <laughs> don't give them the attention and the focus that they deserve. It's kind of like, oh, I'll throw in calves at the end. Oh, maybe I'll throw in some abs. Right. One yeah, the yeah. Other. So, like, what would you tell somebody to do thing. every day, every other day, once a week, and what exercises? Grab it. I'll go. Anyone, I'll go ahead. Yeah, I'll go. So, off-season, I want athletes to be doing their abs twice a week. I want one day to be doing some type of you know weighted ab crunch or a machine that replicates that if, if there is one. And the other day, I want them to do some type of, um, of leg raise. You know, and it's not like this crazy intense stuff. It's, you know, four sets of 15 to 20. Um, you know, I don't want you working so hard to, that you contract up and everything. And that's another note. If you've ever had hernia, hernia surgery, you are at major risk for your whole abdominals just cramping out of the blue when you're doing some of your some of your ab training. I, for me, I have to very, I have to ease into it very, very slowly. And some days I just have to say, I can't do it. You know, mm. uh, pre-contest might give it a little bit more tension, you know, three to four days a week, maybe. Um, but, and then it comes down to like, okay, is someone having a back issue? Are they having, you know, a hip flexor issue? Then we might address the certain exercises, or we might actually add a little bit more of a load to it where we might actually push some, you know, eight, 10, 12 rep sets with the app training. But generally I just want you moving them and doing something, contracting, stretching them. And more so it's really for that control because I think abdominal control yes. is the biggest thing here because nobody really knows how to flex their abs. If you, if, if the first time you are manipulating your abs is when you get on stage, of course, it's going to look weird. It's not going to look proper. But if you have been doing abs twice a week, you've been doing vacuum exercises, you've been mindful, you've been doing the belly breathing, you know how to manipulate and control your abs. So on stage, you're going to be able to show that control and show a better taper. So I think more than anything, it's building that mind muscle connection to your abdominals. How about you, Phil? What would you tell somebody? Well, I kind of dropped the ball on this, so you called on me, I'm going to be honest. Um, I have a ton of off-season programs designed for training. I forgot abs in all of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, look, a client will text me and they'll be like, well, what do we do for abs? And I don't want to just sit there and be like, oh, I forgot. But I'm like, oh, I just put it at the end of upper body. That in, in prep, I have them training their abs before cardio. But again, it's not really for abs, more so to drop their blood glucose and put them in a fat-burning zone. But I do have them in consistently in prep. Off-season, just completely forgot to put it in. And I missed calves too, so <laughs> at some point I have to revise that. So I'll tell them just do some do calves. I'll, I'll discuss with them what to do for calves and how to train abs. I even have instructional videos that I send to clients that I that are only for client client exclusive that yeah. teach them how to train these body parts. But I forgot to put it in all my off season plans, <laughs> so it's not in any plan that I have. So I kind of dropped the ball on that one. I'm kind of I going the other slow. direction than you guys, uh, okay. which is kind of cool. And that's what I waited for to see if maybe mine was different. And in part, I think it's two reasons. Number one, again, the older I'm the older demographic. But number two, 
I came off of chronic lower back injuries for years and I really struggled to figure out what the reason was. And I did fix them. I mean, I've been, my lower back has been injury free minus the tightness of my QL when I couldn't walk at Swiss last year because I gained 40 oh, pounds God. in three weeks. Don't do that this year. Don't lower. do that. No, I, I mean, I'm in good it's my lower back's been great all i had to do was get my fat ass back in the gym and get my weight under control but anyway what i do is i uh do focus and it's not with everybody so i'm speaking more of myself and some clients depending on their situation but if there's any type of uh, questionable vulnerability with the lower back hip flexors whatever lower back pain in general um, even if it's not current but they have a past with it i do think that not only leg raises but Things like decline sit-ups, not full range, but where you can involve, you know, a lot of the ab training for bodybuilders these days, vast majority of it is more isolative in the sense that it's more just for the ab wall. And I think that that's leaving out from a structural, like integrity component, it's leaving out, it's leaving too many tools in the toolbox. When I started my stretching protocol, which is what literally saved me in the end, it wasn't chiropractic adjustments and anything else. That's a Band-Aid, fixes it for five minutes, and then imbalance of muscles are pulling against each other right away within five minutes. But when I was able to strengthen and um, the abs and essentially all those little, you know, even the quads where they cross over the hip is still important. So if you're not very strong with them, bent knee, leg lifts, but even lying leg lifts that are frowned upon by saying, they, if my back starts to get tight, I can literally put them in for two sessions and, and it's like, oh shit, night and day. The hmm. other thing is oblique training. Now, if you're old school, you think of oblique training, you go, oh, heavy side bends. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, something like wood choppers. I'm talking about uh, which is something that bodybuilders don't even usually incorporate. They'll be like, oh, that's a, you know, that's a CrossFitter. That's a different type of exercise that we don't, it's kind of foreign to bodybuilders. But for stability, obliques, I mean, if you think about it, it, it's huge. And especially for the QL, which, and I don't want to dive too deep into the QL, but a lot of older bodybuilders do have issues with the QL and they can't pinpoint where the pain is so they just naturally assume oh you know it's my lower back it's my erectors it's not engaging my glutes which is a problem because a lot of people won't have their glutes engaged and i always say doing bent over rows and i've always used the cue that with clients because my chiropractor training partner used it with me you have to literally in exercises like that pretend that you're holding a pencil long way <laughs> up and down between the crack of your ass and you can't drop that pencil or you'll injure yourself and he would always come up to me i was doing better rows and he would literally middle of the set and he would jam his finger into my glute not my starfish but into my glute to make sure that my glutes were contracted because when they are contracted that takes so much of the work off the lower back as far as stabilization. So these things are important too. And I know that I'm kind of going all over the place. I'm kind of a discursive kind of guy, but it's all still the same topic. Point is, is a lot of the ab development. I don't need abs. I don't like, I don't have poor ab development. And if I'm lean, my abs are, they're great. My situation, a lot of older guys is, and especially if they've been training for a long time, they have the musculature from a visual aesthetic standpoint. They just don't have the strength of everything that surrounds it from the TVA, potentially QL issues, obliques might not be balanced or you have an imbalance. Uh, so there's just a lot of those different 
minor subtle details that if you just add them in for 10 minutes you know once or twice a week they it can be something that can keep you in help to keep you injury free or really to avoid something pretty catastrophic when it comes to your lower back well i'll tell you before we move on uh my first experience with abs uh, my first contest i didn't have a lot of muscular development and um I had always been told, you know, you build abs in the kitchen, right? And I got into shape and I literally, I had veins going through my stomach and I hardly had abs. It wasn't until I dropped water until that you could actually see them, you know, dominantly, like they, they actually showed through. So the next season, all I simply did to just get more development was I'd simply use that. I mean, I did a bunch of different stuff, all the rope things, the leg raises, all that. But I settled in on, you know, that, that I think that life fitness makes the machine that you crunch down while your legs crunch up. Mm-hmm. And I would just mm-hmm. put like two or three plates on it and I'd crunch it down and hold it and then do a slow negative up. I think I did like 10 reps and all of a sudden my abs started like cramping on me. I'm like, oh shit. And I just stand up and like look all stupid in the gym. And that was it. Like I was done for the day. Right. And then I eventually, I worked my way up to a hundred of those and I figured to myself, okay, contest prep, I'm going to get abs this year. And uh, I, I just, every day I did a hundred of those when I was done with my workout and by like, you know, a month in or so I could do a hundred of them in under, you know, four minutes, five minutes, something like that. And that's all I did. And then I, I never had to worry about abs again since like from there, then I think I, I got what you're talking about, Skip, like over time I developed more musculature. So tip for the new guys, you know, you do have to at some point build them, right? You know, I've got a, I got a funny story that goes along with this. Actually, everybody's going to laugh at me. So, um, Yes, you're right. You do have to develop them at some point. Now, I, me personally, um, like I don't brag about how lean I am because I've literally had abs from the day I was born. You're that but guy. You're that guy. They, I hated you all my life. But they, but they weren't <laughs> deep. They were very, very shallow, barely able to see abs. And then when I was... I think I was 14 or 15, I got a computer, I got AOL, I was in chat rooms, and I met a girl that was going to be at a match that I was going to be at, and that was going to be in about, I think, six or seven weeks or something like that, and I told her I agreed up, and I didn't. <laughs> so I, I must have done a thousand crunches every single day. You were motivated. Day, and my abs have been deep and thick ever since, you know, like, but... You have to like really, like you said, you have to really build them at some point in order to have that that separation and that depth, that definition and that depth. You can't have depth if there's no muscle there. Yeah. Wait a wait a minute. I guess I assumed that the funny part of the story was going to be that you were catfished by a fat thirty five year old when you were fourteen. <laughs> no, she actually, she actually, pretty lame ending to that story. She didn't show up with match. She what? She didn't show up at the match. She ended up dating a different guy in my weight class that the next year I faced and beat the piss out of him for that reason. I bet you had better abs than him, too. he had abs. That's where I Well played. He was was better looking than me and went to a private school, so he probably had money. They're like, Uh, Phil, um, you don't need to take your shirt off to wrestle in this match. Like You need to wear the onesie thing. (laughs) He just runs out there, Kurt Angle style, friggin' straps off. And they're like, no, no, you need to put the top on. You're like, huh? I I can't understand you. I was was, was vicious in that match. I got a penalty point. Like I I, I was being an asshole. I I I I was genuinely like still mad about it. 
Hey, what's up guys? I have a lot of people who reach out to me on a regular basis who are trying to more effectively reach their goals. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make is that they're not getting enough protein. And there's only so much chicken breast we can eat through the day, but we can easily add a high quality protein supplement to boost those numbers up. True Nutrition has just about every protein powder you can think of from high quality weight isolate. If you don't tolerate lactose, then you could use their beef isolate or you could use their pea protein isolate if you don't eat animal products. They literally have everything you think of. I've believed in them for like a decade before they advertised with us. And they they never went out of their way to say like, hey, we want to promote our stuff through you. I literally asked them because it's a company that I believe in. And at the end of the day, I want to see you guys reach your goals as effectively as possible. So if you use our code, think at True Nutrition, you'll get some savings, you'll help to support our programming, and you'll get some high quality products to more effectively reach your goals faster. All right, I got something I've been wanting to ask you guys all day. I saw this um, over at the group. Kane Batista had said, uh, question for the show, thumb off for pulling exercises. Is that myth or legit? And I said, wait, is that a thing, Kane? And he said, I see Dusty with his thumb on, like his, his barbell row. Um, I've always been told thumbs off while pulling. I pull thumbs I think off. It all, do you? Yeah, I, I do too, yeah. but... I pull thumbs off, but I do think it depends on the thickness of the bar, right. the handle angle, because you'll also see like on some chest pressing machines, I don't want to wrap my thumb under. I keep it kind of on the side or even no. like this. So I think it all, it comes down to a number of factors, thickness of the bar, angle of the bar um, in relation to your body's anatomy. Um, but yeah, generally I'm a thumb off guy. The you know, it's funny when, to hear this question because you know, I've been training for so long and I had to literally th think about it yeah. because it, so that makes me think you're just too deep in the minutia. Now I can understand that it's, I'm not saying uh, it's not a valid question. All I'm saying is to train so long. And I, I kind of got the sense you guys were thinking about it too. Like, damn, do I, how do I now? And I know I'm more of a hook grip guy for pulling, but you make a good point, Andrew, if I'm doing chins, because I'm not very wide-shouldered and my scapula don't open, I have to use straps. Otherwise, my hands will want to pull in on, on the bar. That's mm -hmm. just it's it's something with my structure that I have to keep. So I have to. Keep, I'm very limited on my grip when it comes to a chin or a pull-up for that reason because they'll want to slide. So I have to wrap. That's one of the few pulling exercises where I will have a thumb under what I call it a whole hand grip. Now, Dusty. I'm trying to think, <clears throat> you know, I've never pulled 10 plates. Yeah, so it's it's kind of hard for me to, but, but I'm thinking when I'm rowing, um, no, when I do barbell rows, I do have a whole, I say a whole hand, it's still a hook. Sometimes, do you guys do this? Where it's like mm -hmm. this. Okay. I do yeah. have a press oh, yeah. Okay. So you're, but you're not over, you're not under, and I'll do it on pulling. Like if I'm doing rows, ball, that's yeah. just a natural grip for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, but I still think, not that it's an invalid question, but I just wonder if it's almost like what feels natural to you. Don't overthink mm -hmm. it. I wonder Grab if it's it like an over-gripping thing. Because if you really crank down on that, I, I was, you know I what was I mean? going to make that point. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if that's it. And I feel, because I feel like if I'm lifting something that I imagine, I've never rode like Dusty has, but I imagine if I did, I'd take like everything I had to hold on to that bar, you know? 
Well, let's take into consideration the fact that Dusty Dusty can roll five hundred pounds and fucking rack get a thousand. So your back's not right. going to not grow. Your, your spine's going right. to break or your back's going to get big. You know, so yeah. <laughs> he's he's like monstrously well, strong. So like, well, he, I he would argue. I would argue that you have rode like him, Scott. You just don't have the same poundages. Like, like yeah. the feeling is the same, right? It's just that yeah. maybe the weights that you're doing, no one's stopping to videotape and watch. No offense. <laughs> well, and arguably, the strength from your, you know, your biceps, your brachialis, your forearm well, grip is going to be comparable to your rowing. It's going to be relative, you know, to me, that it, like it is to Dusty or Phil or, or any of you guys. So that's yeah. a good point. Yes, it looks like a lot of, and it is, it's a lot of weight, but he could probably still hook grip that with the, with the, I don't know that he would need the added extra strength because, yes, his back is strong. It's not like he has a weak grip. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I'll He's not him. missing in the grip department. And I know this he uses actually- Versa grips too. Like he doesn't use anything else. Oh, really? This is a topic that I've actually put a lot of thought into. If you guys don't mind for a second, really? But, um, yeah. Like, well, this is a well because it's. it's I, th- I feel like it's an important topic. Uh, I don't think thumbs on, th- thumbs off is going to make a difference, but I do think that it's it helps with being foolproof. For example, because of the point that you made, uh, people try to torque the equipment a lot of mm. times, so, like a, like a motorcycle. So a lot of times, when I teach people to row, I teach them wrist backwards a little bit because mm. everybody has a tendency to try to come over top and get some yeah. internal rotation and use their rotator cuff and kind of torque and leverage the movement. And you can see when you do this, this is a clear way to see it is you get yourself a figure eight straps, the one that wrap around your, your wrist and they go around the bar and then it loops around your wrist. got two loops. Yeah. So at one end of that loop, hook it on the handle. You put the other loop on your wrist and you row like that. You do open handed because the, the, the straps holding on for you and you'll realize how much weaker you actually are when you can't get any torque on that handle. So I think thumbs off just keeps you from trying to like really torque it. And I think on things like barbell rows, for example, where the bar can move, you can't really go thumbs off because you need to have a grip on it. You need to have control of, of the, yeah. of the equipment. So like dumbbell row, it's, it's going to be very hard to go thumbless. Barbell rows can be very hard. But when you use the machines with the, that the handle's not moving, it's stationary, you know, like it's not going to turn in or out or roll or anything like that. I think you're pretty safe with going thumbs off, but again, you're probably going to need straps for it. Mm-hmm. All right. We had a bunch of other stuff here. We had some stuff in the live stream too, so I'll pull some of those questions up. Let me see here. How about this one from Alfonso, our lawyer friend? He says, uh, great show, guys. Do you believe squats and deadlifts make the waist thicker? Um, would the rep range make a difference? High rep, 10 to 20, perhaps better for your waist rather than four to six reps. Thanks for watching, Alfonso. Ty, can I take it one step further and just add to the question and ask you guys this? Not to just focus your answer on the growth of the muscle. Do you know where I'm going? But the interest equal pressure as well. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that might play more into the, and then you get into the argument of the TVA is that going against what we want to do with the TVA. You look at power lifters. I look at myself when I'm doing leg presses, you know, especially when I was in the off season or anything else. I mean, it's out there. Yeah. So, you know, and then people say, say, keep it tight. Look, you're not going to ever do a leg press with your abs contracted and think you're going to come out of two or three reps without yourself up really bad. 
Yeah. Bracing makes you stronger. It's, you know, that's, <clears throat> that, that, that's pretty much a fact. That's why uh, powerlifters are told to blow out. Bracing makes you stronger. The one year that I actually uh, abused GH and thankfully caught it, I've talked about this before, I started to get a GH gut. My stomach started sticking out. My squats went up. <laughs> How high did you go on the, on the growth? Uh, the highest I went was 14 I used for two weeks, and then I ran out of time before the show. Thank God. Ah. But I started and, – and here's 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 another point to the visceral fat. And this still is – I still have this to this day. When I was uh, young all the way up until I was probably 30 when I hadn't run GH, yeah. if I flexed, my abs are sucked in. My stomach felt completely empty. I felt like it was there was air in there. It was no effort whatsoever to suck in and, and flex down. Now, if I do it, I feel like there's some resistance there that's that's kind of stopping, like what Skip said, maybe intestinal growth, but there's something that's stopping me from being able to pull all the way in. And I remember when I started using the GH and I was really like abusing it at that point because I, I had done like eight for four weeks, then I went to 10 for like four weeks, and then I went to 12 for a couple of weeks and I said, hey, let me try 14. So like I was continually going up and I think I was accruing visceral fat and by the end of that, I couldn't suck in at all. Um, like uh, my fiance Francesca was yelling at me. We, we, I'd be posing. She'd be like, suck your stomach in. And I was giving bullshit excuses. Oh, I'm just tired. I'll, I'll do it on stage. I couldn't do it was the problem. I could not. There was something blocking me from sucking my stomach. Can I argue the chicken and the egg thing, though, for just a minute? Yes. I, I mean, this is just to play devil's advocate, just to play the other side. Were, were there, there were other variables, though, that you have to consider, too, like you're probably pushing more food. So you had more no, food potentially in your – you weren't? Well, here, here's the thing. That was when uh, – back <clears throat> the one time that Matt Porter helped me out for a show in the last uh, last seven weeks, I think it was. And he – like my metabolism, he put me on 50 grams of carbs a day and no fat. So oh. I was flat and starving. And that's why I bumped the GH because I was like – I looked oh, – I thought and I – you thought you liked him or he, he liked you. I fucked the joke up. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> Forget <laughs> it. No, but the thing – he was known for getting people peeled, but he was like a really hard diet coach. So yeah. like me on 50 grams of carbs is not good. And I was getting very, very flat and very, very thin looking and it was driving me nuts. So I realized like every time I bumped the GH up, I was getting rounder and fuller again. So I was like compensating for how flat I was with the GH. Okay. So it wasn't a more food issue in in that because no, I was going to argue the other one, basically saying, well, how do you know then that your squat that you're you weren't getting thicker through the midsection because of increased pressure from increased um, strength well, for well, squatting? Well, no, that that this wasn't this wasn't muscular. It was coming from the inside out. Yeah. Like it was and it wouldn't happen that quickly. Like if I tried to suck in with everything I had and made my stomach flat, I couldn't breathe. All whatever was in here was pressing up against my diaphragm, and I couldn't breathe. Yeah, gotcha. Hey, if you were to go back as as you were increasing, where would you have stopped if you could do it all again? Um, I would have been smarter about the insulin sensitivity and about what yeah. I was eating. Okay, yeah. no, but GH dosing, where would you have stopped at? Uh, well, if I was trying to get big, I wouldn't have. <laughs> I was just, say, just watch the insulin sensitivity. Keep the dosing in there. Just watch the Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Do you guys have anything else you want to add to that one before we went to some more? No, I think yeah. in short, we're basically saying that those movements will or can increase the thickness through your obliques and, and your you know abdominals. But the question is more how and to what, what plays into it more. Is it intrathecal pressure versus growth? Um, is it insulin sensitivity? If you have, there are a lot of variables in there. I just think I'm, I'll, I'll say it before you guys do, and you may disagree, but I do think 
that based on my experience of what I've seen working back and forth between bodybuilders and powerlifters, I denied it for a long time, but I do think the the guys who squat and pull bigger, I don't think it's a coincidence that they have thicker midsections. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, Scott Stevenson's with us. Back to that uh, the gripping thing, he said the reason would be to keep from over-gripping which tend to mean the arms are overly active and can lead to less focus in the lats. That's a phenomenal point as well. Yes. Yeah. And you didn't read that last part, but that's gold too. Hands are Hands. hooks, elbows are hinges. Yes. That's, that's you know what? Here's my really problem. Very concise. And I think all of our problem. We all know that. It was just, yeah. it's so obvious to us that <laughs> exactly. we didn't even think to bring it up Intuitive. as a point because mm-hmm. it's like the first thing we think of to you to not use your bicep. So maybe we, we do sometimes have to remember to really go back to the beginning, I guess, of the thought process, yeah, because I know right, all of us right. know that. It's yeah. elbow right. travel. It's not hand or wrist travel. It's elbow travel. Where are those mm-hmm. elbows going? All right. How well, about look, this one? Look, what Andrew just said, that's rampant in fitness, though. When I used to manage gyms in New York City and I had to develop training staff, they always shied away from the basics and tried to get into the complex stuff and almost forgot about it. And, you know, we would go through, you know, um, you know, pitching training sales and going through assessment, all this stuff. And they never wanted to do the simple stuff. So they're like, oh, that's basic. Like, no, to them, it's rocket science. To you, it's mm-hmm. basic. Yeah. You know, so we, we kind of forget that the things that are easy to us are not easy to everyone else. Yeah. So or that because they're boring to us, they're going to be boring to other, you know, to the people that we're trying to teach. And that, and that's just not, you can't approach. I do the same thing with seminars and I always go in going, man, they're going to think this is boring as hell. But I emphasize as long as I've been in the game, you have to get the rudimentary basic stuff and you have to master it. And too many people think that they're ma- that they've mastered it, and they haven't. All right. Here's Let's a case say in point. Here's a, here's a case in point to what because I just started this. Uh, you guys are gonna laugh. This like breathing program, right? It's all about. It's like a morning routine to try to. Um, I paid for it too, to try to relax your psoas, to help your back, help your posture, all these different things, right? Hmm. And of course, you know, he sends you the all. 12 or 18 weeks right at once. So of course I'm looking, I'm like, just laying on the ground and doing breathing. Like I already do that. I, I could do that while laying in bed. So I'm scrolling down, you know, but I did catch myself. I, Cause I said, wait a minute, this guy's the expert. This is how he's teaching the program. I would be completely upset if someone did this to one of my programs and just skip to the hard stuff. So oh, yet yeah. you know, to your point, Skip, I, I, you know, I went back to the very basics and did exactly as it says. Yep. All right. I think we got an injury situation here on the live stream. Um, Let's say you're doing a hamstring exercise and on the eccentric part, you feel a small pop in the belly of the hamstring muscle or any muscle for future reference. Is there a way of uh, somewhat or to somewhat guess if it's a tear without some sort of medical scan? The pain right now is only when putting pressure on the squat. Um, I'm not a, uh, I'm, I'm not good at distinguishing the difference between pain. That is something serious and not. If that's the case, then you should definitely go and have it looked at. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like if yeah. you're kind of one of these people that like a, a three feels the same way as an eight in terms of pain <laughs> to you, like you definitely should go, you know, 
yeah, you should definitely go see someone. But in terms of, you know, because hamstring pops are, you know, grade one, grade two tears, they're, they're common, you know, they happen. Usually they'll be followed by some blood pooling. You know, sometimes you might not notice it until two, three, four days later, and it might hang around for, you know, two, three weeks even. I can remember my training partner, he had what looked like a gunshot wound worth of blood sitting on his hamstring and glute from oh, yeah. a very similar situation for like a month, I felt like. And, um, Here's, you know, here's what I tell people to do with these kinds of situations is if, if we even think it's serious, absolutely go and get it checked. But I have people go in like three, four days later and say he was doing the hamstrings. I would say, okay, get on the hamstring curl and I would put it on like 20 pounds and do 40, 50 reps, just one or two sets of that and do that every time you go to the gym because I want to get new blood in there and I want to mm -hmm. remove the toxins out, right? So I want to foster that that uh, healing process as much as possible and do that by getting blood flow to the tissue. And then from there, I think it's literally a day-by-day -day assessment, right? You know, you test it out with these squat movements, you test it out with ham curls, you test it out with some stretching movements, some type of, you know, hip hinge movement to see which things are hurting so that if you do need to go to the doctor you can tell them exactly what movements are causing the pain for you um so, and from there you know it, it, it's real hard because i don't feel comfortable taking the place of a doctor or a qualified pt so my it, it's one of those things where on myself this is what i do for analysis on myself to determine yeah. if i need to go see a professional for most of my clients though it's like hey let's just get it scanned let's get it looked at um, after we do some of that rehab stuff that i was talking about you know because it could have just been a little twinge you know and just to be and clear it might be gone when you say like stretching, you're not doing like extreme heavy no. stretching, right? You're like kind of feeling it, right? Kind I'm of talking like, out. okay, if, if I might be doing, you know how you can touch your toes? Yeah. I'm not touching my toes. I'm like, okay, put my hands on my knees and then seeing at what point as I travel down that I start to Thank feel you. tension there. That, I just wanted to yeah, be clear on that stretch, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. And when I say muscle. stretch... I'm, I'm, when I went, when I, when I was mentioning stretch, I meant on the, um, eccentric part of the hamstring curl, yeah. that's kind of your stretch movement. And usually you can assess, you know, how many range, how many, how many degrees of motion can I get out of this before I start to feel something? And you might not feel anything you might, yeah. you know, a lot of times, you know, cause I've had issues like this, you do like, you know, two sets of 50 with, and you don't even feel it. It's, it's, it's not hard it's not challenging you're just getting blood in there and you do that for you know every time you go to the gym for you know say 10 sessions in a row it's been two or three weeks at that point you can then start to test it out and assess it like okay what movements can i do what movements can i do and i will say this if it's still really if, if you're still feeling something negative two to three weeks later that's when i would absolutely definitely go and see somebody for, uh um you know, to get it fixed. Let me throw this yep. one at Phil here. I'm going to move on, guys, just because we okay. had a bunch of stuff here. Um, Steve had a question. He said he's very, very leg and torso dominant, competed in eight shows now. So seasoned guy, always a lower volume, higher intensity style trainer. Um, when trying to improve arms and shoulders, volume versus, versus frequency versus intensity techniques, what do you say, man? Well, I think it's a pretty simple answer. Um, we have to understand that recovery is finite our, our resources in our body are finite and if we spread it out through the entire body then you know we're going to have like a little bit of recovery here a little bit of recovery there and whatnot if his legs are phenomenal i would just start skipping leg training <laughs> i know mm -hmm. people aren't going to like that answer but mm -hmm. the guy i have some guys that uh you know i have one guy that uh i actually i think it was last year put on a top, put like 30 pounds of muscle on him in 
maybe a year and a half and it was all upper body because his legs were insanely dominant. And what I did was I just let him train legs once every 10, 12 days and everything else was upper body and the upper body grew faster. Let's be honest. The guys in the gym that don't train legs, they all have a huge upper body. Why? Because they're only repairing half the body. So all of those recovery resources are more targeted. They're getting more. So when you have a really strong body part, you know, I know Arnold was the one to say, don't train your strong body parts less, uh, train your weak body parts harder and whatnot. But I, I don't agree with that. I think that if you have a body part that's very far ahead and you can stand to stay off of it a little bit, especially if it's a body part that takes up a lot of resources like legs, half the body, that's going to really cut into your recovery. If you eliminate that, then everything else is going to grow that much faster. So I don't think he has to worry about splits and exercises and all kinds of crazy things. I think just reduce the leg training. That's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you'd add to that, Skip? Uh, <clears throat> no, the only thing I would say is what I've said a million times over about arm training, and that is when people are so focused on how weak their arms are, they typically are overtraining them. And in situations like that, the first thing I do is I don't add because they've already done this before they come to me. They've added work. They've added frequency. They've added four, so many intensity techniques that they can't even train a straight set anymore without doing a drop rest giant set. And, look, you know, something that would shame Milos, that Milos would walk away with his tail between his legs going, gosh. But so I pull it back. I pull the training back um, initially and they hate it. Sometimes they don't do it at first, and then they they keep doing what they were doing, and it still doesn't work. And then they decide to listen, and then they see the growth start to improve. And you know, the catch with arm training, too, is it's not like rowing. It's not like pressing, and it's not like training legs. You're not going to see you know, a, a six-rep increase from workout to workout. Uh, you're not going to see you know 30 pounds going on the bar. You're going to see a rep here or there. It's going to feel a little bit lighter. Um, you're going to have better control. And you're just, when you pick up the weight, you're going to be like, wow, that just didn't feel as heavy as it did last week. Those are indicators right there that, that as Phil was saying, your recovery is finite. So if you're overtraining your arms, which is going to play into it, it's a chain reaction, is also going to limit all of your pushing and pulling as well. Uh, not only that, but I'll add a, th- a third uh, variable, and that is you're opening yourself up to. Uh, you're going to be more vulnerable and more open to injury as well. Likely from your pulling and pressing versus uh, and inflammation. I mean, we could throw in a bunch. I could keep going. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, it's a downward spiral when you start to get into it. And I think it's the same with shoulders. I don't want to leave shoulders out. Um, try doing even low incline presses or flies where your front delts are fried, uh, inflamed, overtrained good luck and i think that in my experience the vast majority of people will overtrain their front delts before the or even their upper chest before i mean i've i've personally experienced where i'll start to regress on an incline but i can still be progressing on a flat or a decline i mean what does that tell you so you just have to be careful with the overtraining component of it no matter what body part it is but don't forget how much work how much secondary indirect work you're getting on for arms and shoulders on these other days and if you're not sure and you don't think it's very much take three weeks off of training and go in and just bench press and tell me that your triceps aren't absolutely destroyed for the next two or three days yeah. You'll find out real quick how much tricep work there is with the with the pressing movements. They, they actually asked Kevin Laverne how he got his triceps so big, and he said, "He said I think he said something like you're not going to like my answer.'" And I'm like, "Well, what is it?" And he's like, "Pressing." 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. chest training, built my triceps is what he said. Well, no, I don't think that's as an example. Everyone. If you're rowing 10 plates and then you go and you curl 100 pounds, I don't know what he curls. I'm just using arbitrary numbers. But tell me that that brachialis and those biceps and rear delts aren't just, I mean, when you're moving that kind of weight, come on. The indirect yeah. work is absolutely insane. And again, it's relative. Too. So if you're, you know, as far as Dusty trains heavier and he can move heavier weights, but my heavy, you know, my five rep max is going to be, you know, relative to what his five rep max will be. He's just using up more plates in the gym than I am. So there's still that indirect growth. And I, I, I say the later that people get into their training, once they're not necessarily seasoned, but they have four or five years where it's consistent training and they know what they're doing from a mechanical standpoint. I think that a lot of your arm growth and arguably some of your shoulder growth uh, is coming from, I don't want to say more from, but more from your heavy pulling and pushing than you think. And I think most people think it's only the direct arm work and, and they're missing the boat on that. I've got one more thing for us, guys. Uh, kind of a new segment that we're trying to do. Um, and this is something we, we have done in the past before, and that is um, critique some training for some people. So I'm going to see, you know, I'm going to start out here because this one's easier for me to grab. Uh, can, I, can I throw a question in real quick? Because I had somebody yeah. DM me and I said I would pose the question for you guys. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's actually an interesting question because I don't think it's talked about much. And I think that the answer to the question can also help people that are not in this situation. Um, if somebody asked me, uh, how would you prep and peak a type one diabetic? And I think this information would be useful for everyone. So, you know, I pose the question, one of you guys can, you know, give some of your insight, I'll give mine at the end, but I think it's a good topic to talk about is how would you coach and how would you peak a type one diabetic? You know, somebody that doesn't produce insulin. Well, we, talked, was, we touched on this uh, just a couple episodes ago, and I know Andrew and I were kind of on the same page with this this part of the equation and that is when type 1 diabetics come to you as a coach they already know so much about their body and how their body responds to carbohydrate and their insulin i mean it's not like a type 2 who you know may have denied that they had a situation for a long time and still might miss a shot here or there or go hypo or they don't type 1s monitor their blood sugar like a freaking machine they know where it's at half the time they don't even have to monitor it and they know where they are so it is I think easier with a type one. I worked with mm. um, Anth Bales. Um, it's been a while, but back in the day, and he was a classic example. He knew where everything was. He knew his body inside and out. So I think it would be a lot harder <clears throat> to get a type one who hasn't been in bodybuilding very long versus a type one. You know, like I, you know, I've had more than just Anth, but Anth is who comes to comes to mind. He just he knew what was good. So honestly, there wasn't a whole there wasn't a whole lot to do. There wasn't a lot of different uh, methods. He even loaded. He even skip loaded. So cool. uh, I don't want to take up the whole. But that's what came that what that's what comes off the top of my head. Well, if we're, if, we're, if we're weighing the differences and, you know, seeing, you know, what works and what, I think the biggest thing is peaking. Peaking is where it's going to be the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. But there's things that you can't do as a coach for a type one that you can do with normal people. Like you're not going to zero carb a type one diabetic. Can't do that. You've got to find other ways. Yeah, that is one of those things that I naturally would assume. Yeah, that, just like we were talking about before. We assume these things are understood, so but that's a that very good point. 
the fact that you can't bring carbs down so low, what do you do to compensate? Because in a normal situation, you might have wanted to bring those carbs down, but you can't. So what's the alternative? You can't do it like a keto diet with a type 1 diabetic? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that, but I think so. I've, so. I've done it. I did it recently. I didn't have any problems. Yeah, because then they just don't need as much insulin. You know, they're they're administering well, I, the amount of insulin they need, but then the, their insulin needs go down uh, as their insulin. What, you know, if their blood sugar, what if their blood sugar drops? Are, wait, time out. Are we talking peaking versus prepping? Like prepping right now. Like to to to, to get them into shape I, versus. Yeah, I, you just don't. You okay. don't. You. I mean, then they took too much insulin. Then they made a mistake. And I had had I have had that happen, but then they just use. I mean, they they might come to me and be like, "Hey, man, I messed up, and I ended up needing to use some carbs." And it's like, okay, we get back on plan. But I had a guy who worked with a really big name coach recently. Actually, he might even be listening to this. And the way that this coach um, works with people, he works with some of like the best of the best, and he's he's used to working with guys who respond really well. So he he did like an entire long off season with this guy. And he loaded him the way that, let's say, you would load a Nick Walker in an off season, and uh, for just for instance, and uh, he he ended up building some muscle, but he also put on a lot of fat too, and he wanted to get in shape. So we didn't do a prep, but we got him down to like nearly. I mean, actually, he was going to do a prep, but then he decided to move to Germany, so that whole thing was off. Anyway, um, we dieted him down, and eventually, just like anybody else, you know, who was dieting hard and had. It's just like a poor response. We worked our way down to keto and and he got down to needing about, I think it was 20 units of insulin. And I remember, do you remember Eric Serrano said something, Skip, about uh, insulin needs for a diabetic at Swiss? And he said he thought that 20 units was about that sweet spot. And I said, well, let's just see if there's any truth to that. And that's about what we got down to was he needed about 20 units a day. And um, and then he ended up doing okay with that. And eventually we did start adding carbs back in because he was at that point where like his body needed the carbs. You know what I mean? It's like eventually after he's been on it long enough, it's like he's kind of stagnating and we're like, well, hey, let's try some carbs pre-workout, right? And then he started to do better with that. And, and now he's slowly reversed. And then he, like I said, he planned to move to Germany, which is like a last minute thing. He got a job over there and, and so that him and his wife were going over there. And and then so he said, I'm not going to do a show, but I don't really want to lose condition. And we ended up riding, I think, just like two carb meals for a few months because he was like, I just want to stay in shape. I don't know what I'm going to do next. He came off all the gear and all that. But yeah, we got down to about like 20 units a day and he didn't have any need for, I think, any fast acting insulin either. And uh, but he was, you know, he managed that and he just kind of kept me posted of what he needed. And, um, but yeah, he, he had no problems with it at all. There was like maybe two moments and he was the guy we talked about the other week when we're talking about insulin guys or yeah, when we're talking about diabetics guys, he was a guy who had a poor response to Clen. If you remember, we were talking about yeah. that. He couldn't yeah. use Clen. Clen spiked his blood sugar, uh, like crazy for some reason. I don't, I don't know mm -hmm. why, but even like a tiny dose did. So we didn't use Clen. We considered going on T3 if he needed it, but then it just turned out to be one of those things where like, well, we don't need it. So let's not use it. Mm-hmm. Now, where, I have some questions because I didn't even know that was possible, to be honest. Um, so what was his blood sugar doing throughout the day? Where was it hanging around? Was it going up? Was it going down? Was it staying the same? I'm curious. I'd have to ask him. You know, I just he'd report in on, on how he was doing. 
Um, but I mean, I think he used, uh, I think he used a long acting insulin and, and he just didn't, he le needed less and less every day. So imagine like if you eat carbs, then, you know, he would take his blood sugar and he'd realize, okay, yeah, I need more insulin. So he just would have to adjust. So like when we added a carb meal in, or we did some sort of a cheat meal, then he'd have to adjust for that. But like, I'm totally hands off with that. You know what I mean? It's like, like you guys, like you were saying, Skip. It never dropped due to activity, like fasted cardio, hard leg workout. It never just crashed on I was wondering the same thing. It almost had to be so – and preps are, I get it. But it would have had to be above and beyond so regimented. And that's how it, it comes back to the how type ones are, that they typically are incredibly structured and regimented. And, I mean, you did touch on something, Scott. You did say that we slowly over time brought it down because yeah. you can't be bouncing all over the place. There has to be this very, very rigid – yeah, we didn't do anything um, crazy at any given exactly. time. It was yeah, yeah incremental. Like okay, you know what? I think that we're we're starting to slow down. Let's remove these carbs and let's change yeah. this to fat. And I talked to him all along the way with it and stuff. So, and he is a guy who is like super, you know, in touch with what he's what he's doing. He's obviously all his life he's been dealing with this. Which would be difficult point, as well though, to load yeah. or to cheat or to offset the metabolism because if you're so low carbohydrate or, or keto, and I always say it's bodybuilding keto, it's not true right. keto. But, right. um, so it, it's just, it would be very, very difficult to do that. I know in, in my, this is just me and I don't have, you know, this, I've worked with a lot of people in the amount of time, you know, that I've been prepping, but I can't claim and would never would that I've worked with a ton of, of type ones. But I think that it's safe to say that, well, I know in my case, they would still load because I would not want to pull. I'm okay with dropping carbs, but I wouldn't want to pull them real low to, because I still want to use a loading protocol of some type. And I think that the lower they are, I mean, here's the, here's the question. I, I have to jump to this question, Scott, is how how did you manipulate, like what did you use if it came to a, but cheat meat was it just like a like wings and and things like that? I mean, it, you couldn't really load him with carbs because I would think that it would be such yeah, a no, strong still, response. He, no, he would he carbs. would add insulin in on those on those carbs. Yeah, sure, right. But I guess what I'm saying too is remember, <laughs> skip loading isn't so like this. <laughs> yeah, okay. Your, it would, it, no, it'd be like a one meal type thing. Okay, but but how yeah. rigid were the parameters? Like, was it X amount of rice? Was it so that like sometimes were you very we had done things like, you know, have something that you want and just be conservative, a meal that you want, let's be conservative with it and see, let's see how you look from that. But we, he was, put it this way too, the way I feel is that because he was so, when I say sensitive, I don't mean good sensitive. It was like, we were never at a point where it was like, we needed, to, he needed a huge load. He was the kind of guy that we could probably have been like, hey, let's use, you know, three quarters of a cup of rice four times today, and that would be a low. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. Because like the he, other he thing, just never got there to that point. Yeah. The other well, thing is I, that most diabetics today they have continuous glucose monitors, so yes. like you'll know up to the minute on your and that's phone. What he, it'll that's give what you. he uses. And the other thing I was going to say to the type one nature of type ones, most of these people find out that they're type one when they're children. I know we're starting to see some type three type insulin, uh, uh, you know, dependency needs now, but, but most of these are kids. So like, think about like, if you had a habit that you developed as a child and it was yeah. ingrained in you, like you need to be on top of this for you to survive of course as an adult and then you get into a sport like bodybuilding that is also very type one you need to do this now you need to do this then it's really not that hard honestly i find type ones to be 
almost easier than regular people because they already have the glucose monitor. They already know how to take insulin. They are, you know what I'm saying? Like they already know how to track these things. And I'll take you even further. I've had a girl that we got her down to six units of insulin a day total, no basal, just, you know, two units with three meals a day that she was eating her three, her two, her three carb meals that uh, with two units a day. That's great. Yeah. I think we were under 20. I can't remember where, where, where we were exactly. That's crazy. She's a hundred pounds. She was, she's a hundred. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think peaking is where it gets more dangerous and it gets a lot more separated from what we typically will do. Um, We all in this group, I don't want to name names because I don't want to, you know, single, uh, you know, point out the person or the coach, but um, our friend worked with a very, very high level coach and did very well in almost a few times from the peak. Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a very, you know, sensitive thing. For example, when you start to load a diabetic, right? Yeah. Obviously they're going to take insulin. Well, insulin is directly correlated with aldosterone. So every time as you're loading them, their aldosterone is going through the roof. So now you got to use aldaxone and you got to use aldaxone. Like, and we, I, I'm pretty sure most of us don't like aldaxone very much. So, um, you know, you've, you've got to take into consideration all the different physiological responses and, and necessities that wouldn't be in place with a normal person. Like you're not going to get a type one diabetic to stage without a diuretic. I just don't think it's possible. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe somebody's better than me at it, but I don't, I don't see that happening. You know, so well, I don't think you're going to load problem. them at the last minute either. It's going to have to be a, a yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna have to load them and, and make sure that those last would, couple days. I would want to front load somebody and then yeah. just sit tight on Friday yes. and, yeah. and cruise into the show. Just drink your water, do your normal meals, probably some lower carb meals, and just go with that look. Because yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying, Phil. Because you're saying we don't ever want to put someone in a position where they're going to get hurt. Well, some other coaches out there might be willing to roll that dice a little bit because they don't have the kind of relationships with with their clients. I I, I totally understand that. But I, honestly, I just look at you know me and the client as being the pancreas for the person in that sense. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, I, I think that if, if you kind of have that mindset, you're not just guessing, you're, you're making a very educated based off of the prior responses that this person brings to the table of telling, okay, I usually need to have five units of Humalog with a meal with 50 grams of rice, or I need to have, you know what I'm saying? And then as the prep continues, yes, you probably need to use a little bit less insulin with each meal as they get more and more sensitive and more and more, um, uh, as they get leaner in general. But I, but I think if we just kind of play the role of the pancreas between, I'm not just saying me as the coach, but me and that client, um, I think, it's almost easier than the average person. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, then you've got to take into consideration, you know, the actual night before and the actual show day. Um, as we know, we know this through medical literature that being dehydrated causes insulin resistance. So, you know, we've got to, you know, what would normally be, like you said, the correct amount, you know, in a normal situation is not going to be the correct amount in that situation. We don't know how far that insulin resistance has gone, how long they've been dehydrated, what they use to make it worse. They take diuretics, made it even worse. You know, so when you help, when you don't have uh, fluids facilitating motility, when you, you know, you don't have, um, you know, when your insulin resistance starts to kick in, then, you know, what it, it's more of a micromanagement situation. That's not hard. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's, I think that's harder than a normal person to hold it because of those reasons. You know, they still have to eat their meals on show day. They still have to eat their meal the night before when they're already dry and water is reduced and everything. Um, I hate to say the word cut because that implies that it's completely gone. Right. So, yeah. yeah. We, we, we stop heavy water at a certain point, and then we micromanage it. So I, I call that reduction. 
Um, but it's going to be harder to manage all of those things. You've got to micromanage it more, and there's probably going to be a lot of guess and check going on. You know, blood sugar might shoot up. They might take what would be a normal amount of insulin even a little bit more, and it doesn't do the job. Then you got to take more and check again. you got to take more and check again. So it's going to be a lot, a lot, a lot of monitoring to really peak somebody in those situations, you know? I think you hit on something, Andrew, in, and it would apply to that case is having a continuous monitor because then you don't you don't have to worry about, like, recheck, recheck. You can just constantly look on your phone and see you know that would be super yeah, and i also think that'd be super helpful for him to, to add to that i think you need to make it as simple as possible e- like yes. even simpler like honestly i would err on the side of no diuretics uh with the diabetic because i would want to get them fuller earlier in the week and then i would want them just to naturally dry out by increasing protein and lowering the carbs on friday and then i would probably rely on just a little bit of vodka or alcohol um, as a diuretic effect versus an actual pharmaceutical diuretic in that situation. Uh, I mean, that's what I've done, I should say. So, um, but yeah, it's a good topic. Well, I mean, if, if, I mean, if he's done it and it's worked then that holds water, right? So like, like I, I don't have a lot of experience peaking type ones. You know, I have friends. Um, I think I've only done it one time. So, you know, I'm not entirely sure from an, an experienced standpoint. I'm just basically going off of what I know from the medical literature and my base of knowledge. So it seems like you guys have a lot more experience in this. That's why I'm just I'm trying to like listen and pick up what you guys are saying and process I'll, it. And everything. I'll say, Phil, the person that you and me were thinking of here, I think his coaches and maybe him have always taken the hardest route to get to stage, if you know what I'm saying, because the minute the guy gets off stage, guy? he's got to, is he what? Real big guy. Really big guy. Okay, One of the yeah, biggest. Really, oh, yeah. And, and really when he gets off stage, it's almost yeah. like, holy shit, get the medics over here right now. Mm. Um, it's I one of those carried situations. him to his room last time, remember? So like he, I watched I you was, doing it. <laughs> I was I was I was livid that he put himself in that situation and that his coach would put himself in that put him in that situation. Because to me That's it was clear they, what they were doing was wrong. They were loading a lot of sodium. I'm talking about he ate a boat of sushi before bed with like ten packets of soy sauce at bedtime. He had pancakes all kind and like the, the sausage with poured salt on it in the morning. I think he did somewhere around like sixteen thousand milligrams of salt of sodium from the day before up until stage, but he was also taking insulin. Insulin causes super physiological intracellular concentrations of electrolytes. Fancy way of saying it pushes more salt into the muscles. So his body was like seizing up. He was he was essentially dying, you know, and, and it, it 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 made me so angry that a coach of, of that level and that stature and that education would do that. Cause it almost seems like he would know better. I, I could tell you stories I mean, and we could all tell stories, but there's another very famous big name coach who literally put his client seized up, had a seizure the night before show had to go to the ER and the coach just said, take another diuretic. Oh, that's right. Back when you, it's like he didn't even read that. Hey, I just got back from the ER. My body seized up. Like I don't know what's going on. I'm very lethargic. I can't see clearly right now. Uh-huh. Okay, great. Take another diuretic to, and, and tell me how you do tomorrow. And this is for national. Based, anyway. based on based on what I know of top name coaches, I can narrow this down to two people. But I'm not going <laughs> to say it. Obviously, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you after this. But yeah, I bet yeah, you all. I can narrow it down yeah. to two people. Yeah. yeah, I know you know who it is. I know you're thinking of it. <laughs> all right. We actually ran out of time. That was a great place to end. Phil, we appreciate you having you back on, man. This is really cool. I love being cool. here, guys. Thanks. I appreciate you. What do people reach out to you if they want to follow along with what you're doing? I'm always on Instagram, just phil.biz. 
pretty Build easy. That vis. I'll put that in the description. And of course, go to uh, bodyberry.com. You can reach out to Andrew over there and teamskip.com. You can go over to teamskip there, reach out to Skip. Uh, hit me up, mcnallydiets at gmail.com. And of course, thank you to everybody who shops with our sponsor, truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK for some high quality proteins, carbs, creatine, everything you can think of, and supplementsource.ca for Canadians. Thank you to everybody from Patreon. I think I do have a couple Patreon questions here. We're going to tackle that in the next episode. Guys, we'll see you soon.